The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epics. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 26th. Today, the high-tech risks of smart home devices. A college basketball team suffers at the hands of their coach, and the case against huge restaurant portions. What happened was this mother, Tara, daughter was about three, and she kept saying, there's a man in my room. And this went on for weeks, and they thought, you know, she must be having nightmares, and they tried to reassure her. Then one day Tara walks in the room and she hears pornography playing through her kid's nest can. Reed Albergati covers consumer electronics for The Post from San Francisco. Someone had hacked into the camera and whoever it was happened to be watching pornography at the time. And she could hear sort of faint voices as well in the background. And Reed has heard about other people that have had this happen to them, getting hacked through baby monitors and home security systems made by the company Nest. Somebody hacked into a Nest cam and told the Bay Area couple that there was a North Korean missile attack happening, where someone was saying racial slurs to to someone through their Nest cam and hacking their thermostat as well. So these these reports have, have been out there. Reed says that hacking into a baby monitor like Tara's is basically child's play. And that's a problem for something that's supposed to protect your family. It does sound like somebody had been, you know, talking to her kid or talking through the camera. She immediately called Nest technical support and said, this had happened, what's going on? And Nest told her to turn on two-factor authentication. That's when You get a text message to your phone with a code, and you have to type in the code, in addition to entering your password. But she had already done that, or at least she says she had already done that. And so when I heard her story, I thought, this is is really terrible, but it's not really a story until you figure out what's really going on. And, you know, I talked to security researchers trying to figure this out, and what it ultimately came down to is that a lot of people, actually probably the vast majority of people on the internet reuse their passwords from one website to the next, which makes total sense because what you're really supposed to do is use a password manager, which stores your passwords in one place and allows you to make randomly generated passwords for each and every website. So if one website gets hacked, then the other ones are are fine. Yeah, exactly. If one gets hacked, then they can't get into your other accounts. So for a long time, it was really the people who were just sort of paranoid and and ultra careful who kind of used different random passwords for every website. But the problem is hacking has gotten so bad these days that literally everyone's passwords have been stolen at one point or another. I You can look this up on this website that we linked to in the article. It's Have I Been Pawned? I mean, I looked myself up. I think my passwords have been stolen 12 times. Oh, my God. They're all out there. And it's not just stolen and then sort of kept in hacker databases or something. I mean, these are out there. You can download people's passwords on Twitter. The other thing that's happened is that there is software 
that's been around for a long time. It's called credential stuffing software because basically what it does is it takes your credentials, your passwords, and it stuffs them into all these different websites. So it's an automated program that will test millions of passwords at a time against probably hundreds or thousands of websites and platforms to see if a stolen password can get you into other accounts. Now, credential stuffing software has gotten so easy to use thanks to some enterprising people, one of whom I interviewed, that anyone can do it. It requires no technical knowledge whatsoever. So I interviewed this person who did not reveal his identity to me, but he is the author of a credential stuffing program called Sniper. And he goes by the name Pragma. And he does all the work for you. All you have to do is take one of these public password dumps and dump the passwords into his software. And I could go watch people's Nest cams right now. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get free stuff. And, you know, it's people trying to get into, you know, League of Legends video games or free Netflix accounts and things like that. And then what was interesting is a lot of the public reports of some of these Nest cam hacks happening last year. And it just happened to coincide with this sniper software adding the capability for Nest Cams. So the software didn't have it before. And all of a sudden now, you let's say you're using Sniper to get free Netflix accounts or free video game accounts. All of a sudden, it's like this Nest thing pops up. And it's like easy as just clicking on it and going and watching people's Nest Cams. So I think what happened was it just, it just became so easy. It's like a crime of convenience. And so how does Nest respond to this? This is the other part of the problem. So it's true that people could stop this themselves, this particular type of hack themselves, by changing their passwords, using password managers, enabling two-factor, all of that, right? But companies like Nest also try to stop it. Even if someone does get a hold of your password and try to log into your account, they implement all sorts of measures. They try to go and find these stolen passwords themselves and see if any of their users are vulnerable. They try to use you know, algorithms to determine whether a login attempt is suspicious. And there are some things, though, that they don't do. Like they don't enable CAPTCHAs, you know, those annoying things where you have to click on pictures of cars or crosswalks. Yeah, it's sort of like a it's a thing that stops you from logging into your account immediately and you have to like sit there and click on random pictures to prove that you're not a robot or something. Exactly. And the CAPTCHA would actually stop this sniper program from working because what it does is it automatically logs in, essentially tests the login credentials of Nest accounts with lots of different passwords. If that software had to do a CAPTCHA, it would be blocked. It wouldn't work. But the problem with that is, and I talked to to Nest about this, is that would be really annoying for all their users. And companies are, these are highly competitive industries where any little annoyance, they call it friction in the industry, would really put them at a disadvantage to their competitors. So they don't implement every single security measure that they can to stop this from happening. That's the discussion that needs to be had. Reed, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Reed Albergati covers consumer electronics for The Post.
Coach Atchell, talk to us a little bit about what you've seen so far in the early part of practice. You know, we've got some uh, pretty good bodies out there and pretty good people. We just now got to blend it all together. Sylvia Hatchell was the head women's basketball coach for the University of North Carolina. That was until players reported that she'd made racist remarks at practice. One instance had threatened the players if their play didn't improve, they'd get hung from trees with nooses. Sports reporter Will Hobson has been writing about the UNC women's basketball team, a team that is noteworthy for multiple NCAA conference championship wins and for its coach, Sylvia Hatchell. She is legendary in collegiate women's basketball, and she's racked up the fifth highest number of career wins for any Division I basketball coach, for men or women's basketball. But when the allegations against Hatchell became public, women's basketball players started speaking out, like WNBA player Chene Ogumike on ESPN. For a long time, we've considered our coaches to be parental type of figures, and anything they says goes, even if that feels like it's pushing you beyond your boundaries, right? And the allegations against Hatchell weren't just about racist remarks. She and the, the medical training staff had been pressuring players to play through injuries, either to take cortisone shots or their painkillers uh, rather than sitting out to seek treatment. And also that there had been a series of, of misdiagnosed injuries. It was, it was a lot of stuff. The story of Hatchell's resignation started with an announcement. So a few months ago, the university announced that they had put the entire women's coaching staff on, on paid leave. And, and we and a bunch of other reporters uh, around the country obviously just wanted to figure out why. What had they done and what allegations were the university looking into? So we, we called as, as many parents of current and former players as we could and uh, pretty quickly got a, a pretty good handle on, on what, what they were alleging was going on there. What was the first time that Hatchell did something that raised red flags for people? I think... Taking a step back, North Carolina had a, uh, an academic fraud scandal in 2015 that resulted in four players transferring out. So all of a sudden, a very good team didn't have a lot of players. They had a, a very bad year coming off that, and I think there's a perception that that is when the pressure for injured players to play uh, really ratcheted up. That led to a situation we laid out in, in a story where a player by the name of uh, Hillary Fuller, who was a, a senior uh, forward, she was playing through obvious knee injuries that other parents were remarking. I mean, she's, she's dragging her leg up and down the court. Hmm. Players are saying in the locker room before every game, she's having the knee shot up. What, what does that mean? Injected with painkiller. And that's not entirely uncommon, but it's not recommended for an injury that could require surgery because you're not treating the underlying injury. You're just masking the, uh, the pain. So she was getting shot up before every game. She's often needing the knee drained of fluid at halftime. Mm. On a, a number of occasions, players observed her holding her knee after the game and, and sobbing. And then she actually had to just quit. Halfway through the season, she, the pain just became too much for her. That was kind of the first major red flag. Tell me more about some of those situations. So there were at least six different situations in which players had injuries that the team medical staff, is that they alleged, the team medical staff told them they could play through a bone bruise, a strain that they tried to play through, it was too painful, and then they sought outside medical opinions that found it to be much more serious, torn knee tendons, a broken hand. Was there a concern that the fact that they kept playing through these injuries could have made them worse? Absolutely. And that was paired with verbal pressure from the coaches to play through injury. There was a, a scene that played out early fall of 2017 an early season practice where there's four girls on the sideline, three of them recovering from knee surgery. And Coach Hatchell barks at them or barks at an assistant, you know, get these girls out of my sight. You know, they, make, they make me sick. 
Wow. And later on in that same practice, she's, she's trying to, at least according to, you know, the parents of the girls we've spoken to about this who are there, she's trying to impress upon the players that, you know, you're going to need to know the difference between being hurt and being injured. If you're just hurt, you have to play through that. To these players, is bewildering because three of the girls that she just banished had just had knee surgery. These weren't, you know, bone bruises they were sitting out with. And one of those three players then, a few months later, called her parents in tears, said she had been forced to run sprints before she had been medically cleared. And as a result, had re-injured her knee. As a result of that, ended up missing the entire season. But in theory, like, isn't there a, a doctor for the team that is supposed to be the one making decisions on who is able to play and who isn't able to play? Like, shouldn't there have been someone else who could step in and be like, actually, no, this injury definitely isn't healed. This person should not be running sprints in this practice. That's still kind of an unanswered question around this. You know, we talked to people aware of a situation where there is a player named Stephanie Watts, who's a very good player on this year's team, who had an injury towards the end of the year. The doctor, a guy named Harry Stafford, told her initially, you have a hyperextension. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you out just as a precaution. And actually sends a text message to Stephanie's father to that effect. So she's held out from play, but she's trying to practice. She's trying to get her good to play in the ACC tournament a few weeks later. And she keeps saying, you know, my knee, it hurts too much. I'm feeling too much sharp pain. And finally, her father encouraged her to get a second opinion. And when she goes to the team doctor and says, I'm, I'm going to go get a second opinion, he says, well, and it's according to people that, that are familiar with the situation, you just, you know, you do have a tear. And this was... According to these people, the first time now six, seven weeks later that the word tear had been used. Hmm. So, and, and that's the team doctor. Now, the university conducted their investigation. They did not lay any blame on the medical staff. They didn't, they didn't say the medical – they didn't confirm anything, any allegations around the medical staff pushing kids who are not cleared to play back on the court. But they also didn't release the investigation in, in its entirety. But to answer your question, yes, the, the team doctor should have been – and the training staff should have been preventing girls who are not medically ready to get back on the court from being forced to get back out there. And then you said that there was one incident of a racial remark – uh, there were a couple. The one most, I think, egregious was if y'all play against Louisville like you did tonight against Howard, you know, they're, they're going to string you up from trees with nooses. Or, the remark has been described in a couple different connotations, but the words noose and tree are unanimously recalled by the players in the room. Are some members of the team black? Most of the members of the team are black? Yeah. And what did they say about hearing that? I mean, they found it deeply offensive. But it was sort of the culmination of a, a series of strange remarks she'd made in that area. Uh, last year, there was an assistant coach of partial Native American lineage. And when Coach Hatchell learned about this, about her, her ancestry, she suggested apparently as a joke that the team do some type of war chant at the end of practice to, to honor this coach's ancestry. And the, the coach was visibly uncomfortable with, with this remark. And she did it a few times, we've been told. What do the parents of these players say? I mean, you know, the, the parents of the African-American girls are understandably deeply offended. And, and you know, there is a father of one player who, uh, his name is Michael Jones. And there was a, a meeting uh, in which the parents kind of laid out their grievances here to the administrators. And, and Michael said something along the lines of, you know, you mean to tell me that my daughter in 2019 has to deal with the same kind of BS that I had to deal with in, you know, 1985? And then, I mean, the, the medical stuff, the parents of the girls who had the medical issues really are just, just horrified. What do you think this story says about the state of 
collegiate women's basketball or college basketball in general or, or college sports? You know, the question I always have as a sports reporter is how much more of this kind of stuff goes on. College athletes are among the most difficult people to try to get to open up. They're not empowered in the way that a professional athlete is. You know, pro athletes will often and routinely talk about problems they have with their coaches or management or team medical staff. These kids want to keep their scholarships. They, even if they want to transfer, they don't want to get labeled as malcontents. I wasn't able to get any of the girls on this year's team to talk to me. I could only get their parents to talk to me. So I don't know to what extent this kind of stuff goes on, but that's a larger question. Will Hobson is a sports reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The case for smaller portions at restaurants. Well, I should preface it by saying I'm a child of the Midwest, and I grew up being a member of the Clean Plate Club. You know, we couldn't leave the table necessarily unless we cleaned our plate. That Midwestern mindset is really important to remember, and that's something that permeates the, the restaurant business, too. My job, I mean, people might laugh. You know, I eat out for work. My name is Tom Sietzma, and I'm the food critic for The Washington Post. A couple weeks ago, I was reviewing a venerable Italian restaurant in Georgetown. It's called Filomena. And I was shocked by the size of the portions in this restaurant. I mean, everything, you know, the seafood stew that arrived on a barge or what looked like a barge, titanic portions of, of pasta and meat and such. And I was seeing next to this mountain of food left over from other people. I happened to be sitting near where busboys were putting leftovers, and I couldn't help but see that half of these plates were still full of food, like cups and cups of, of pasta and sauce were being sent back to the kitchen uneaten. I know that 40% of food in this country goes to waste, period. I guess the problem is with restaurants is that there is no standardized portion size, right? So it's whatever the restaurant serves. And often restaurants point to that as a, a source of pride. You know, it's hospitality. It's welcoming to people to see a large portion of food on the plate. I also think that the size of the plate matters. When you've got a larger plate, it's expected that you're going to have more food on that plate. I would certainly advocate more restaurants offering half portions, and not just for pasta. Half portions of pasta is ubiquitous, but I'd like to see half portions of maybe steak or, you know, other dishes or, 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 or more involved things like cassoulet or a fish stew or whatever it happens to be in that restaurant. I do remember the waiter at Philomena. I just said, wow, these are large portions. How many people ever finish this? And he was like, he didn't know who I was. I was just an anonymous diner asking. And he smiled and he said, zero. Tom Sietzma is a food critic for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app.